my friend and your friend, Mr. Al Beck. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. I'm sitting here. I got uh, got three books uh, sent to me from nice folks. So Chase the Bears, Being in Nature, and then the, the Sills from North Carolina sent me one about waterfowl, a children's book. Neat. Beautiful painting. So looking forward to looking through them all. So it's uh, nice to know nice people. I, I want to, speaking of nice people, I want to wish best wishes to Cheryl McRoberts. Uh, from Haines, Alaska. She just retired as executive director of the American Bald Eagle Foundation there. And I wish her, uh, oh man, every uh, every bit of good luck and happiness. She's just been, I've worked with her for more years than I can remember, and she's just been a, um, uh, a shining light. And especially during the, the COVID, we really noticed people that were exceptional at what they did and were able to handle things and boy she was one of those also a thank you to brick meager funeral home in uh, Oatana and also the clergy and staff of uh, many of the churches in Steele County for uh, allowing me to babble to them I had a, a red-breasted nuthatch I was out in the yard and it nearly landed on me while I'm filling a bird feeder and we have two nuthatches that are seen regularly in Minnesota, and both species of nuthatches have this dark blue-gray upper side. They have short tails, they have sharp bills, and they have black crowns. The white-breasted nuthatch has a white face and white on the breast that tapers to a grayish belly, and it has a chestnut undertail. And the red-breasted nuthatch has a really bold face pattern with a white eyebrow above a thick black eye line bordered underneath by more white. And the rest of its underparts from its throat to its undertail are kind of a peachy orange color. Both species produce nasal calls with a red-breasted sounding distinctly higher pitched than the white-breasted. The red-breasted nuthatch is just over four inches long, and the white-breasted stretches out to five and a half inches. Nuthatches have a habit of clinging upside down on tree trunks and limbs and feeders, and by creeping down a tree, they're able to find uh, things undiscovered by woodpeckers or other birds moving up a tree. And like chickadees, nuthatches don't linger at a feeder. They grab a seed and they go. Uh, White-breasted nuthatches are found year-round in wooded areas throughout Minnesota. They favor deciduous trees, it seems, over conifers. Red-breasted nuthatches prefer conifers and are common in the northern half of the state. But red-breasted nuthatches are partial migrants, meaning they're seen in the southern half of the state after the breeding season. I've really been seeing a, an awful, awful lot of them this year, and I just uh, welcome them. They're tame, and um, they can cute. I think every field guide <laughs> should just say they're really cute. Uh, picnic wasps. Uh, yellow jackets. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that said they've been b stung by bees while they're at a picnic. Well, you know, those picnic wasps or yellow jackets are responsible for most all of the bee stings during outdoor dining events. Honeybees are fuzzy, and they're cute. 
Yellow jackets are not fuzzy. And, you know, they're handsome, I guess, but they're really not cute. (laughs) Uh, Yellow jackets are good citizens for much of the year. They feed insects to their young, and many of those are harmful insects that might damage trees or crops. They devour many, many, many houseflies. That's one of their favorite things on the yellow jacket menu is a housefly. And Shakespeare wrote in The Taming of the Shrew, If I be waspish, best beware my sting. Uh, Pope Paul, uh, let's see, the sixth, I believe it was, said, Anger is as a stone cast into a wasp nest. And in the Bible, God said he would send hornets to pursue the Canaanites and drive them from the promised land. And he might have been willing to call upon swarms of stinging wasps, or he could have been speaking symbolically for the plague of another kind. So wasps have always been with us, and I guess we picnics have probably always been with us, too. So we get the combination of the two. So just be careful before you put an elbow down or before you drink that soft drink because they will climb into that little hole in the can. I see a lot of flower flies. They mimic bees and wasps. They do not sting. And you can tell flies have only two wings and bees and wasps have four wings. Look for dark-eyed juncos. And I know there's been some around, and we'll be seeing a lot here soon. They're lovely little sparrows. They're gray and white, but you really notice them when they fly because they flash white tail feathers in flight. Uh, Stan of Stewartville said uh, that this is a good sign for gardeners. I think his wife told him, do not bring one more cucumber into this house. So I think that's uh, when you know you're uh, a decent gardener. You're out there just, you're producing. That's what we try to do. Uh, Brian Skogheim of Albert Lee. Uh, Brian moved to a new house uh, just on the edge of Albert Lee, and he saw his first pileated woodpecker, and he said, what an amazing bird. Uh, Arlene Kiar of Northfield uh, sent me a photo of an albino house finch. And this one that she sent is all white, and it has a red eye. Uh, Chad Hines said, this would be heard from him Wednesday, he said there was a cold front coming. Marty had a pretty decent day at Landa Memories that suggests that the birds are getting the idea, and this is part of the hawk watch. Uh, He had his first really large group of turkey vultures, but also our first Swainson's hawk for the fall. I thought we were going to go without it, so that's worth celebrating. Things have been so slow that we have been joking about changing our name to the Bethany Weather Station instead of the (laughs) Bethany Hawk Watch. On Friday, he said, finally, we had a cold front that was well-timed. We had a good push of turkey vultures and our first push push of uh, red tails at uh, Bethany. A listener said, uh, our Minnesota prairie chickens aren't doing very well. Where could I see one? Yeah, the plight of the prairie chicken is a reminder what happens when habitat is destroyed. So Minnesota's prairie chicken population has dropped to just a few thousand birds due to the decline in tall grass prairies. Uh, The Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, it's a wonderful... uh, it's a wonderful place to check out what's going on. They're just a wonderful resource. But some of the places, there's a Glacial Ridge National Wildlife Refuge. They have blinds, and they're near Mentor, Minnesota. 
And, boy, I remember playing mentor in the state tournament, and I'd never heard of mentor. I had no idea where it was. It's up there always. The Erskine DNR Wildlife Field Office, they have a blind at the WMA southeast of Crookston. And, boy, is it Timpanucus? I'm probably getting that name wrong. Something like that. Uh, the Twin Valley Heritage Center has two blinds southwest of Twin Valley, Minnesota. And the Nature Conservancy has two blinds at the Blue Stem Prairie SNA. That's southeast of Glendon. I've been there. It's a wonderful place. The Hamden Slough National Wildlife Refuge, that'd be northwest of Detroit Lakes, has one blind. And that's another great place. The Fergus Falls DNR office has one blind. Five miles west of Rosse have also been there, and they're all great. If anybody would like more information, I have phone numbers and uh, everything else about how you can get a reservation. Just let me know. Uh, Wayne Fetter. Uh, Wayne was a teacher in New Richland up here for many years. Great guy. He is uh, living in Faribault County now, and he saw a short-billed dowitcher and a Wilson's phalarope in that county. Uh, Doug Keezer saw a, and this is going to be, I, Sabine's gull is what I hear it usually called. It's an honorific name, and we don't know how the guy pronounced his name. A lot of people call it Sabine's Gull because there's a river in Texas and Louisiana that goes by that name. I think I probably say Sabine's more than anything else. It's a delicate gull. He saw it at High Island Lake in Sibley County. It has a white tail, and in breeding plumage, it has a black head, but we don't get to see that because it breeds in the Arctic. Uh, Sharon Holzer saw a bay-breasted warbler in Brown County. The University of Minnesota's Raptor Center is celebrating a, it's a huge milestone, I think. Recently, the clinic admitted it's 30 thousand avian patients it's an open it's been around a while since 1974 it's been going and the 30,000 avian patient is a red-tailed hawk it gets a brand new buick of some kind so just (laughs) as a winning this it was injured after it became entangled in poultry netting and it's now being treated, and they're expected to start flight training for an eventual release in the coming weeks. And they're so great up there at the Raptor Center in that they they try to release birds. So does the uh, Wildlife Rehab Center in the area where they were uh, brought in, I guess, ambulanced in. So it's a, they do a wonderful, wonderful job up there. And it's a, it is a hospital. It's a, an amazing vet hospital. I did a tour of it once, and uh, I was astounded. didn't understand half of what they were telling me because they used big words in describing <laughs> medical equipment. And I'm a guy, so our ears kind of shut, you know, when you get to a lot of medical stuff. You know, Al, when I went to the University of Minnesota back, well, I transferred from UW-River Falls to University of Minnesota, lived on the the, uh, St. Paul campus where the Raptor Center was. Uh, When I was was in journalism school, the first story I ever did was on the Raptor Center. So that was my first introduction to it back in 1984, I think. Yeah, so it was just an amazing place, and I thought it was so cool. Uh, 
that's what I did my first story on. So it has a special place and special memory in my heart, the, the cool things that they do there. They do, yeah. And we, uh, I have visited there with some of the administrative and on behalf of the American Bald Eagle Foundation where we're trying to uh, get a relationship between the two so we could work together and maybe get some interns coming up from the University of Minnesota and, and uh, hoping that will uh, work out. Yeah. Um, at Hawk Ridge, this is the 51st consecutive fall migration count season at Hawk Ridge. And in September, they had 51,484 migrant raptors of 15 species. They had 57 non-raptor species were tallied at the observation platform between the 1st and the 30th of September. They had a modest raptor movement that began the month, dominated mostly by sharp-shinned hawks. Uh, the month ended with 39,282 broad-winged hawks. And they said that was slightly, well, slightly, it was about 10,000 above the current 10-year average for that bird. Osprey numbers were a bit low. It was the first September not to break 100 marks since 1985. They had also had the first single-digit northern goshawk. They had six of those, they had 94 ospreys. Northern goshawk is a big brother and sister to the sharp chin hawk and coopers. Uh, peregrine falcons were seemed to be a late, a bit late anyway. They had 42 passing over the uh, hawk ridge. American kestrels nearly reached the four-digit mark, 948. Uh, sharp chin hawks finished the month as the second-highest raptor. They had uh, 8,500. They also had northern harrier, bald eagle, red-tailed hawk, and cooper's hawks were uh, consistent with past averages. But the non-raptor migration over September was dominated, and I bet a lot of you will come up with a name of this, blue jays. Uh, they had 57,958 migrants in September, and they have well over 60,000 now, which set a new record for blue jays. The second one might surprise a lot of folks. It was the cedar waxwing. Uh, warbler species, the most abundant was the yellow-rumped warbler. They had uh, groups of migrant American robins, purple finches that were consistently moving down. Blackbird migration gained momentum. There was mixes of uh, rusty blackbirds, common grackles, red-winged blackbirds. And they had groups of sandhill cranes. They had over 400 of them coming down. So it's uh, it's fun to keep track of that. And the blue jays are, are doing well. So again, the ones you have in your yard this winter might be your blue jays. They might just say, boy, we like it here. Maybe there's a lot of acorns, and they feed us. We're, you know, they put out peanuts. We're going to stay here. Why would we leave? I noticed that could... in, I was noticing at the store, I think it was Fleet Farm or one of those types of stores, they had gigantic 100-pound bags of peanuts. And I just thought, wow, that's a lot of peanuts. Now, so do the birds actually get some, or do the squirrels eat a lot of them? Because our friend Barb Lampson, the master gardener, brought in a plant that was a weed in her yard. It kind of looks like, because it's a legume, it looks like some sort of an alfalfa sort of plant, but it was a peanut because she dug it down to the root. So I'm wondering, yep. when you get all those peanuts, are they being hidden in the ground by a lot of squirrels, or the birds actually getting them, or who's, who's actually really eating all of them? And I used to do a... Um 
Oh, they called it a marsh hay garden, a permanent garden, where I just I'd add more hay every year to it, and it was great. You could grow things like celery and stuff because it stayed fairly moist. But I grew peanuts in there. Uh, I don't know that I did them intentionally. I think it was because squirrels would come and oh. put them in there, <laughs> so I would get peanuts. And I put them in peanut feeders that are pretty much squirrel proof. Okay. And uh, I realized that the squirrel could jump from the roof of the house and knock the feeder down, and they have done that a couple of times, but it doesn't happen every year. So I put them there so the blue jays can get it and the nuthatches can get it and the chickadees can get it. And if you baffle a feeder and you have it maybe far enough away where the squirrels can't jump down on it, they will certainly come to it. Uh I like putting out peanuts in the shell for the blue jays because they just seem to have great joy in finding peanuts in the shell. And they just, (laughs) you put them out there and you don't see any blue jays around, you don't hear them, but as soon as I put the peanuts out, there's a line. They're waiting, uh, pecking order to fly in and get it. And uh, we'll be the one that gets out of the pecking order. There's a pair that comes in together. They're just the, the sweetest birds. They're the ones that make you go, aww. Because they come in they do everything together. They don't pick at one another. I don't know if it's a mated pair or if they're siblings or what they are, but they come in together all the time, whereas most of the other blue jays, it's one at a time. they got to come in and get those. Do blue jays uh, like the the platform-type feeders, or what? what's the best time type to put the peanuts on? Because I guess I've never really purposely tried to get some but since i've seen some in the yard within the last week i thought well maybe i could try it what type of a feeder is the best way to get platforms work exceptionally well there are peanut feeders available and then uh, i have some uh, it's a a tube feeder it's made out of metal to keep uh, squirrels from chewing it up has a bunch of peanut sized holes uh-huh. so if you get the ones that are not in the shell you can put them in there and blue jays and nuthatches and chickadees i had a tufted titmouse he was coming to it the little uh, red-breasted nuthatches just fly into that so they will come and eat that but boy it's a great great attraction for birds to your feeders they love peanuts now and, does uh, do most birds besides do other birds besides the the blue jays can they eat them out of the shell too or is it just the blue jays mainly that like the shelled ones it, it's other ones certainly could but it's mainly the blue jays okay and and they come in and i put out you know a couple of handful and they're gone almost oh. instantly so i don't know that any other bird has much of an opportunity <laughs> they just come in there and get that and then you don't see them they're just they disappear into the mist so but boy do they love they just love peanuts and it's fun making making them happy i guess in a way uh, i don't know if a, a blue jay can smile but i'm sure they're smiling when they come in there they just love seeing those and you wonder how did they ever determine they like peanuts you know yeah. i'm sure there was one blue jay years ago said yeah that looks that's, <laughs> you know because there was a guy somewhere that said pointed at an oyster and said well those, those look like they'd be good to eat we should eat those and i'm sure it was the same with one blue jay just said those, <laughs> you know, those look really good we should eat those and they started eating them and the, the rest is history i guess I'm sure there's a Blue Jay sign out there, however they communicate. Maybe they have a a newsletter or something saying peanuts are the best things. 
Say Al. Yeah, same with peanut butter. A lot of things like peanut oh, butter. Oh, I love yeah. peanut butter too. But Rich, our friend uh, Rich, sent a text right now. I want to make sure I get it before we get down to the show here. He said, I still saw Monica the Monarch yesterday on my broccoli oh. flowers. And I saw Monarch yesterday too, by the way, too. But he says, do butterflies have gender? So is there like a girl monarch, a boy monarch? I mean, how yep. do you tell? Can you? Yep, you sure can. Oh. And uh, boy, it's getting late for them. You wonder... Um, you know, if they're, what's going on in their lives that they haven't hit the road yet. And and it's cool for us because they still hang around and we get to see them and enjoy their company. But, boy, that's a long journey down there and they got to get down there before too long. But the males have a black spot on the top surface of the hindwing and the females, it's, you can see the spot when the wings are open, and sometimes it's faintly visible when the wings are closed. Uh, males also, they tell me, have slightly thinner wing veins, but boy, that's really hard to tell. But uh, males have that black spot on the vein on each hind wing that's not present on the female, and oh. that's the easiest way to tell. Okay. Yeah. And it's it, you. You wonder if it's males that are hanging around because they're just too stubborn, you know. <laughs> saying I don't think the winter's really going to be that bad this year. So, but it's uh, it's nice that we uh, that Rich that you have something that it can it can feed on and maybe find a little nectar here and there and you know just make its its last time here on earth uh, a pleasant time i've still got a ton of things blooming but you know when we get this frost it looks like coming up the next week i think then that's going to pre- be pretty much it but right now they're good but if they wait till next week i think they're goners and we've had a couple of frosts here you know to, yeah. I don't know 29 or something but boy it really didn't um, i saw one squash plant got it pretty good but other than that it wasn't too bad I, yeah no, I used to have uh, a garden down in Peat Ground, Mule Lake, so it was low. And, boy, I, I'm sure that would have been all frosted or frozen out by now. That uh, Just get that lower level where the lake used to be, and it would get really cold down there, and we'd always lose stuff pretty early. Uh, here's a text from somebody that said, Do both male and female chickadees incubate the eggs? Yeah, both members of a pair excavate a nest cavity, so they work together building their home, but only the female black-capped chickadee builds the nest and incubates the eggs. So he's, uh, I mean, he brings her food and everything, and he feeds the babies. So he's a, a pretty good dad. It's just a cardinal dads. I'm just looking at a male cardinal here, and I somebody asked me the other day, what percentage of cardinal nests raise young and uh according to tests uh, they have they have a low rate of nesting success oh. uh, according to the cornell lab of ornithology less than 40 percent of their nests fledge at least one young so the uh, and the, i got a text from the same listener said we forgot to take down a christmas wreath on a door we seldom use birds nested in it <laughs> yeah. what kind would they have been uh, the house finch is famous for doing that yeah. so i would say it was a house finch without seeing them or anything but they're really neat birds that uh, they you know i have 
people that call say, we got it on our front door. Oh, and we go in and out all the time, and they nest on there. Uh, one more here. It says, Al, you were talking about wasps. How can I keep wasps out of my mailbox? Yeah, I'm sure the postmaster, postman or mailman or mailwoman or postwoman or whatever, postperson, whatever we call them, <laughs> is probably not real excited about having wasps in the mailbox. And, you know, you, you got all the sprays, but... Yeah. And this will also apply to folks that get them in nest boxes, like bluebird boxes and things. I think maybe the easiest way is take a bar of soap. I always heard ivory, but I don't know what difference it would make. You take a bar of soap and you rub it inside a mailbox. Oh. And that can cause wasps to look elsewhere. Oh, you know, really? As I say, it also works in a nest box. And it's because the soap creates a slippery surface oh. that's difficult for a wasp nest to adhere to it. See, I was wondering if it was the smell, but that makes sense that it would be the slippery surface. Otherwise, you know, you could say, well, maybe they like Irish Spring or don't like Irish Spring, but it doesn't yeah. matter just as long as it's slippery, I suppose. That's I, I always hear ivory soap because one of the reasons I think maybe when people think of soap, they think of ivory. But I don't think the smell is going to make much difference to them. I think it's they're coming in there. If they can't build a nest, they got to go somewhere else. They're on uh, on the clock, and they got to get things done because it's a mad rush for wasps like everything else. How long does it take them to complete a, a nest? I mean, is there a certain size that says we're we're done, or do they just keep going, or how do they know? Yeah, and it depends on how many how many there individuals there are. Oh. So, uh, you know, you think about like the bald face hornet nest, those are the big football size thing in trees and they have to chew all that up. They chew up uh all bits of uh, wood and things and uh, all other kinds of vegetation and then they pretty much just spit it out. And uh, uh, they add to it all the time, some of those uh, big nests. So those you could say, how long does it take them to build it? Maybe four months or something, because they're forever increasing the size of it. But the little ones, the smaller ones, you know, I'm sure it takes a matter of weeks, because it's quite an undertaking, but uh, not that long. But. Uh, I hope that works in the mailbox. The wasp should be leaving everybody alone now as far as nesting there. So I, I, uh, one last question. Somebody said you were talking about uh, Sabine's gull. How many gulls nest in Minnesota? I watched a gull with a fish being chased by other gulls, and gulls are practitioners of kleptoparasitism. It's the act of one animal stealing food from another. And when there's 52 species of gulls worldwide, we see 19, I believe, have been seen in Minnesota. Three species breed here. We have the ring-billed gull, the Franklin's gull, and the herring gull. Uh, thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with us. Uh, before I was a licensed driver, I'd suggest to my father that he should drive us up to Minneapolis. It was always <laughs> up to Minneapolis because we owned a globe. And my father asked why. To see things, I'd say. He'd say, well, I can see things here. <laughs> and to do things, I countered. And he said, well, I can do things here. 
and that effectively halted further discussion. Green Acres was a place for him. Green Acres was an old TV show from 1965 to 71 or so about Oliver Wendell Douglas, played by Eddie Albert, who was a prominent New York attorney fulfilling his dream to be a farmer. And his wife, Lisa, who was Eva Gabor, who'd been uprooted unwillingly from an upscale Manhattan penthouse apartment and moved to a dilapidated farm in Hooterville. And its theme song was, Green Acres is a place to be, farm living is a life for me, land spreading out so far and wide, keep Minneapolis, just give me that countryside. I replaced Manhattan with Minneapolis just for the sake of the tale. Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. Thanks for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Karen, thanks, as always, for your exquisite company. Always great to hear from you, Al. Happy rest of the week and happy bird watching. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Oh, I love Al Bad. He's a great guy. And if you ever miss an episode or you get on the tail end, we put it on our podcast. Go to KMSU under podcast. There's one that's called Birding with Bat. we got one gardening with barb we've got one every day is earth day we've got a bunch of different great ones minnesota state university stories all you have to do is go to kmsu.org and under podcast there's a list of the different shows that we do here on kmsu